0: This is Jay Watts from Merely Human Ministries. Welcome to the Human Things Podcast. <laughs> Cue the Eric Carmen. I'm all by myself today. I had one guest who got sick. Uh, and notice that Eric Carmen and not Celine Dion. Nothing against Celine Dion, but that's an Eric Carmen song. So, um, but all by myself, I had the uh, guest lined up. And she was sick. I had another guest who was out of town. But well, that's fine. We we're going to run by ourselves several times. Uh, so today, what I wanted to start on? Well, I always try to start on something more pop culture, I guess, or less. I guess just an introduction to the stupidity of my mind is what I always say. We were just talking right before we went on about the worst movie they claim they've ever seen the worst movie. Now here, this is why I want to talk about it. Cause I don't want to talk about the worst movie I've ever seen. I've walked out of movies before and, and you know, I take going to movies very seriously. So there are some just genuinely horrible things out there, but there is a tradition in our household that we call bad movie night. And this goes back to when we were friends and all of my friends held out. So participated in this, but I want to share this tradition because it may work for you. It's a great thing. Bad movie night. Here's how the rules of bad movie night work. You have to pick a movie that is both objectively bad, but that you love and your friends have to watch it with you. So whoever is the master of the bad movie night gets to pick the bad movie. For example, two of ones that I've made people watch before multiple times. If I get a new group of people, one of them would be Barry Gordy's the last dragon which is the pinnacle of bad movie awesomeness. I love that movie. Uh, I don't know if you, y'all are familiar with Barry Gordy's The Last Dragon, you ever seen it? No, my gosh, you have to see that movie. First of all, it's got Shownuff, the Shogun of Harlem, which may be the greatest movie villain of all time. A madman. Shogun of Harlem. And Bruce Leroy is the hero. And it's all about getting the glow and, and being able to use it in fire. So, so that's one of the greatest bad movie night showings ever for me. And then the other, one of the other bad movies that I love to show people is one that I'm actually a little bit obsessed with. It's called streets of fire. I'll be coming for her and I'll be coming for you too. Sure you will. Uh, and streets of fire starred Michael Perret, uh, and, and, and I'm going to do a whole episode one day or at least a segment on streets of fire alone, because I have, I've read about this movie for, it is, it is an amazing disaster. I am a fan of when people go all out, whether you win or lose, I love it. I have a daughter who plays lacrosse at a very high level. We talk about this all the time. I tell her because she trains so crazy hard and I tell her win or lose, I don't care I admire the effort that you've put in, right? If you put in all this effort and you end up not being as great as you hope to be, I'm cool with it because I admire so much how hard you've worked at this. And so sometimes in the movie industry, they work really hard to produce something that they think is going to be great. And it's just terrible. And Streets of Fire is that kind of glorious failure It is loaded with people who were Stars at the time are still stars today. Diane Lane was the young ingenue. Uh, Michael Perry is the star of it. You have Rick Moranis in it. You have a young Bill Paxton in it. Um, Amy Madigan. You have Willem Dafoe. It's like Willem Dafoe's first big movie ever is Streets of Fire. He's the bad guy in it. it is, it's made by the, the guy who made 48 Hours. And so he's coming right off of that. And they basically gave him a blank check and said, make whatever you want to make. And he makes... This movie, the music in it is, I mean, it's just everything about it was, was a swing at a home run. And, and it's a fascinating story that we'll get into it some other time, but, but, but it just ends up not working on so many levels, but it's a wonderful, I watch it every chance I get and, and, and make people watch it with me on my bad movie night. So for, that's the bad movie night rule. And it's a great thing to do with your friends because, the, the, but you have to love it. We all have trash that we love. We have to come to terms with that. There's things that I love that I know objectively is just not great. And sharing that with somebody is kind of sharing something really personal about me. You learn more about me when you watch the trash that I love. When you see the things that, and, and so bad movie night, I encourage everybody and anybody. Another thing I was going to talk about today that distracted me this morning, which I'm just not going to get into because I don't even think there's anything to, to talk about. Was was I was... I, I am forever plagued by what I feel like Metaclorians or Metaclorians, however you pronounce it, did to the Star Wars universe. It is so upsetting to me all the time. When I when I reflect on as someone who loved Star Wars, loves Star Wars still, not like everything they produce, but loves the core of where it came from and what it was about. There was there was to me the peak of the force and the conversation about it is Empire Strikes Back, Yoda explaining the Force to Luke Skywalker. That's when it's mystery, that's when it's magic, that's when it's It's something to tap into. It's overcoming like a a view. And I know it's new agey and kind of weird, but Yoda makes it cool. And then all of a sudden we get to Phantom Menace and there's a blood test. And that just freaks me out because now we're talking about a whole different thing, like a database of force users. And we can measure how many medical all that stuff. The worst thing that ever happened to the Star Wars without getting into questions about Ryan Johnson. Medical the worst thing that ever happened to the star Wars universe. And I thought about, let's talk about that, but there's really nothing to talk about. It's just a disaster. There's no, there's no defense of it. It's awful. You took something magic and wonderful and you tried to naturalize it and make it something science and medically based. And it ends up being weird. You just made it weird for everyone is what he did. He took the coolest thing in movie history. For those of us who grew up with the original trilogy, We grew up trying to move things all the time with the Force. Like, it's got to be real. I've got to be able to tap into this, right? This energy around us that binds us. You know, luminous beings are we, not this crude matter. And I'm trying to move anything and everything my entire life with the Force. And then suddenly I get to the Phantom Menace as an adult, and I find out there's a blood test to find out if I can actually do it. What horrible, horrible writing. You just ruined it. With all of that. And you tried to fix it later. Everybody tried to salvage that. That's kind of the history of star Wars after I feel like the original trilogy is, is a little thing that goes wrong. Midichlorians and Jar Jar Binks. And then we're going to try to salvage it later and we get something cool out of it. And then we make another mistake and we try to salvage it and get something cool out of it. The great thing about the star Wars universe is that it's so huge. You have the, the, the ability to fix it by focusing on another aspect of it for a little while. Um, On a side note, too, we'll talk later about my theory of how Darth Vader and Han Solo make things work in the Star Wars universe. And without them, it doesn't work as well. Anyway, let's get on to more serious things. So I was supposed to have one of the authors of this book right here, The Story of Abortion in America, join me. And she will be joining me on a later episode. Uh, Her schedule just conflicted at this point, and so we had to move on. And so I want to reserve most of what I want to talk about in this book to another show. Uh, and what it is, the story of abortion in America is, is what they call a street-level look at abortion in, in America. And how they do that is they tell the story of abortion in America. I have a book, it's about this thick, I think that's about right, written by Joseph Delapina, uh, who is, it's called Dispelling the Myths of Abortion History. He's a legal scholar. Every chapter in the book is a an academic article about the history of abortion, going back into common law and all the way through modern times. It is a great book, but it is not accessible. It's not the kind of thing that people would read. You can get more information out of the history, on the history of abortion probably from that book than you can from almost any other book. I mean, you need other books, obviously, to balance out. You never want to rely on just one writer, but he does such a great job of gathering information. If you actually look at the Supreme Court uh, case that defeated, that overturned Roe v. Wade, and you look in the footnotes, Delapena comes up a lot as they discuss the history of abortion. So Samuel Alito was leaning on that, that book. And then there's other books. But but what happens with this book by Marvin Alasky and uh, um, Leah Savas, who's going to be joining us, what happens in this book is they tell it through stories about what was happening that they can gather through newspaper articles. They can gather through if they collect sermons. But basically primary sources. They're going and finding as much as they can the primary sources of the stories and chunks about how abortion worked its way through America and the different tales, different. And so it's person by person. We'll look at this person at this time. The reason I wanted to bring it up, the only thing I want to talk about it today and leave the rest of it to talk about with her at a later date is whenever I try to read anything, try to read, like I'm struggling reading. Whenever I read anything, I am trying my best to remain as neutral as possible when reading it. I'm trying as best I can to read it as somebody either undecided or as best I can to look at it from the perspective of someone who disagrees with me. I, I try to fight the concept of confirmation bias where we go to sources that already agree with us to, to make us feel better about the things that we already believe. And because of that, we don't take in other sources or consider news from other angles. We, we constantly confirm for ourselves the rightness of our views by seeking out news sources and, and communities and information source, all of this that already agrees with us and just reaffirms our beliefs constantly. And so you have to be very intentional to fight that in the modern world. There's just too many sources of information and entertainment out there that are so specialized that you can get caught into a bubble and not ever consider what the people outside of your bubble think I've heard this talked about. I may have mentioned this on a previous podcast where they talk to journalists and they will ask them, do you know anybody that's pro-life journalists who live in New York? Do you know anybody that's pro-life? Do you have any friends that are pro-life? And it's a surprising number of them that answer when you poll them. No, I don't know anybody that holds those views. So how do you understand people when you don't know them? And when all you do is look to sources that reaffirm your belief. And, and one of the, and I see this by the way, when we are, in debates on college campuses and Scott Klusendorf will be joining me on a later episode. And I talked about this a lot. He says that anytime somebody comes up or he's having a debate with somebody at one time, in one of his debates, the person came to the microphone and said, what have you read from the other side who of, disagrees with you? Have you read and studied to try to understand the view that you're arguing against better? And Scott can immediately rip off 10 books, 10 articles, people he's talked to, Scott has spent a lifetime trying to understand as best he can this view so that he might teach others to be able to engage this in a in a productive way. And the people that he is debating, he said invariably answer nothing. They've made no effort to know what the people who disagree with them believe or think like. They have only gone and looked to the sources of people who agree with them. And so even when I'm reading somebody who agrees with me, I'm aware of that as a failure of consideration and intellectual honesty. And so I'm trying my best to read it with an, with a open mind about the people I disagree with. So as they're sharing stories about the people who actually provided abortions in the United States, when abortions were terribly dangerous and when they were illegal, almost everywhere. And and particularly in some of this one section, one chapter, they talk about abortions in New York city. I try my best to think, what would somebody who thinks that abortion is a right and that it, Protects women's freedom. Think about these people who are providing these. Would they elevate them in some way or another? And something like think of it in terms of civil disobedience. I want to give them a chance to show that they're not what I assume that they are, which is people, deeply morally flawed people, and in some cases, monsters who are making money by providing a service that they know people want, but these are not good people doing it, right? And, And so try to fight the urge to cast them in that light before knowing more about them. And why I wanna talk about, and I've mentioned civil disobedience, but one of the things I think that is important to understand about civil disobedient movements, let's talk about uh, Gandhi in India, or you talk about Martin Luther King Jr. here in the United States, anyone who is using this is trying to draw attention to unjust laws by inviting the punishment of the oppressive institutions. They they put themselves in a place where they they are breaking and violating unjust laws, looking to invite unjust punishment on themselves so that they can be an example to the world and hopefully even to the purveyors of that institution that what is happening is wrong and they ought to see that. That was one of the things that I remember reading in a biographer about Martin Luther King Jr. where he talked about why he felt like he'd mentioned at some point that he was so effective in the South and less would have been less effective in the North was because even though Southern racism was more virulent, the hatred was more out there, outspoken, direct, and seen, unhidden in any way, even though they were capable of greater evil by their racism and unapologetic for it, he said that, the Bible Belt also saw themselves as Christians. And so that if you can demonstrate to them the unchristian-like nature of what they're doing through the practice of institutional racism in the South, you can turn them in a way that would be difficult to turn parts of the country that don't have that same commitment, that wouldn't see themselves in that light, wouldn't understand themselves primarily as good God-fearing Christian people. If you can show the good God-fearing Christian that his behavior is monstrous, you can change him in a way that you can't change someone who doesn't accept that. I've said this before, by the way, years ago, before obviously before uh, the invasion of Russia into the Ukraine, when you would see people online who had a lot of, who got a lot of mileage shaming people through Twitter and the United States, tried the same tactic on like Vladimir Putin. You're like, you're not gonna bother him. He doesn't care what you think. That guy has no conscience. He won't, you can't cast him in a negative light, put him in a situation where he's going to evaluate his behavior and say, yes, I ought to live up to a different standard. And I see it through these acts of repudiation that you're trying, or these embarrassment of this, whatever this online world that you're trying to do It's necessary in order to change those who run the institution, that they have some level of a conscience or some objective moral values that they're operating on standards that have nothing to do with just you know, uh, raw greed or lust for power or anything like that. So, so Gandhi wants to change the British rule. And so he invites the punishment of the British on himself through acts of disobedience so that they can see that they are brutal and change. Even if the people who are practicing the brutality won't change, the people who are in charge of them or the citizens of England and British empire will and will call for change. By letting them see how they are punishing people for doing things that they ought to be free to do, Martin Luther King Jr. does the same thing. He goes, you do, they do sit-ins, they do all of the different the practices, they marches, peaceful marches. They're inviting the punishment of people, and and hoping that that punishment will reflect the the. The evil of the racism that they practice and that they live with in the institution and in, in here in the South at the time, so that the whole world can see it. They are there's courage in civil disobedience. Now, this is a long lead-in to what I want to talk about here, as to how the experiences that they talk about in the story of America, of abortion in America, upend the idea of seeing these people as practicing civil disobedience for a righteous cause, because. The people that are performing these abortions, it turns out, are just terrible people. Let's talk about Madame Rastel. You know, she was in the mid nineteenth century, so the mid eighteen hundreds. Has a massive mansion, I think, on Fifth Avenue in New York, entirely funded by the illegal practice of abortion that she's and she's she's protected by like, like Boss Tweed. She's protected by the political system of New York at the time. She's bribing people. She's paying people off. And the people who are getting abortions just so happen to oftentimes be paying for women who they've had affairs with to get abortion. They're powerful people who don't want their affairs to be discovered or the things that they're doing when people aren't looking to be discovered. And so Madame Restell isn't this brave abortionist providing a service. She isn't fighting for the rights of those people. You know how we know that? It's not just by the fact that she got crazy, insanely rich so that she lived this wild, opulent lifestyle off of the abortion industry that she was running there in New York. Also, she had a a clever habit of anytime her cash flow was not what it wanted or what she wanted it to be, she would call up her former clients, the men who had brought women to her to get abortions and promise to reveal their secrets if she did not get money from them. She had them. She owned them. She blackmailed them. This is not civil disobedience. This is not a brave person fighting against unjust laws. This is somebody profiting off of death and secrets and corruption and living off of that profit. It's only later that her her whole empire falls apart when Boss Tweed's empire falls apart and she loses her, her protection and people will finally start talking about what she's doing and the charges that she's going to face because she was charged multiple times and arrested and she was able to get off because of political corruption. She realizes that's gone and she takes her life. Other great stories about these people, these abortion providers. We have a case where a man, an abortion provider, accidentally killed a woman he was trying to provide an abortion for. So rather than face the consequences for what he's done, go to the police and say, I'm sorry, but I was just trying to take care of her. I was doing what she needed for her. I'm a medical doctor. I'm defending her right to to choose what she wants to do in her life, he folds her up, puts her in a trunk and tries to ship her to Chicago so that her body won't ever be found. She's discovered on the train. Uh, another lovely guy did the same thing, trunk trick, but instead he threw her into the river. By the way, this guy cut her nose off and all of her hair off before he threw her in, so it should be difficult to identify. We have dozens of stories of in the early 20th century, women who go and get these illegal abortions. And the abortion doctor tells them, no matter, I will not do this unless you promise me, unless you promise me, that, no matter how badly this goes, no matter what happens, you will never mention my name and never tell anybody about my involvement here. And the women kept that promise oftentimes to their death. They they would not tell who this guy was. So these aren't brave people doing a great service to people who are trying to practice their constitutional right, that they're being denied by the world around them. These are opportunistic people trying to make money. And when things go wrong, they cut the very people they claim to be serving loose to face those consequences by themselves. Even when that consequence is death, they're not inviting punishment. They're not standing up to oppression. They're not making themselves the object of an unjust society so that people can learn anything about it. They're operating in secret, making money and hiding every time something goes wrong. They tell us who they are by the way that they live their life all through this story. I wanted so much to come to it objectively and say these people aren't what I think they are. And then every story that they tell, they're all the same story. I accidentally hurt somebody. I accidentally killed somebody. I broke my promise. And now I will slander. I will libel. I will hide. I will will pay people off. I will blackmail. I will do anything that I have to do and not face the right punishment for the injustice that I brought to my community. That's, that's the story of these people. And we're going to talk more about this when she comes on as a guest in the next episode, but that, that was the part of it. And it's still true today. I remember many years ago, Dr. McBreer who was the abortion provider here in East Cobb for years and years and years, all of a sudden there was a story and you open up like a, look at my computer and like a local doctor punches woman at a stoplight, right? Some woman was driving, upset him in traffic. And what does the local abortion provider do? Not, not even the reasonable road rage, not just flicking people off and yelling at people, which I guess could be the reasonable response. We don't cross certain lines. No, he gets out of his car, walks up to her car window, gets her to roll it down with kids in her car. By the way, she has kids in her car and he punches her in the face. Who does that? Local abortionist does that. Look at Kermit Gosnell. Look, at, I mean, we could go on and on about the stories of the weird things that these abortionists do and the way that they live their lives and the, the flaws in their moral character that start to come out. It has to be there. It's weird. So even if you want to see them as heroes, they, they just don't hold up time and time again. They're the bad guys. They show themselves as being the bad guys by their behavior and the things that, and the other life choices surrounding it. But so that was just one aspect of this that I wanted to talk about. So another thing I wanted to discuss, the, the other thing I wanted to talk about today is oftentimes and when I talk to pro life groups, where it's training, right, There's, there's different types of talks. You go into a place where everybody disagrees with you. I've talked in front of audiences as big as like 1100 people where I was convinced afterwards about everybody, but 10 people in the room hated me and hated everything I was saying which by the way, I loved, it's it's a different energy. I mean, it is, it really is a different energy, but there is something pure about being able to stand in front of those people and defend your position and not let it change you. Uh, And I, and I mean, in the sense that it not let their hatred or anger transform you into something that you want to be that for me as a Christian, it's a deeply Christian thing to be able to do, even though I'm not arguing as a Christian in the sense, I'm not saying the Bible says abortion's wrong or God hates abortion. I'm making the case that science demonstrates the humanity of the born and our best arguments, our best understanding of what it means to have equal dignity around through all human race is philosophically grounded in the idea that every human being has equal dignity and our dignity is grounded in our humanity because it's the only thing we all share equally. So those are, I use science and philosophy to make my case. So when I say it's a deeply Christian thing to be able to do, though, when you get to stand in front of people who hate you and respond in love, hopefully, with a rational argument that's intended to draw them closer to the truth, I I mean that for me it's deeply Christian because when I became a Christian in my 20s, after having been a fairly outspoken and nihilistic atheist, one of the things that I found most fascinating, I tell people all the time, I I mention this on a earlier show with Jonathan Noyce when he was on here with us. I just like Jesus better than I like everybody else. I mean, I just, that's mostly what, there was a lot of things that led me to the cross, a lot of research, a lot of reading, a lot of history, a lot of trying to understand what Christianity said. Those were the things that led me to be willing to look at Jesus. But what tipped me over into Christianity was him. I just like him better than I like you, whoever you are. It's just easier for me to say, I like him better. I said that in front of my kids the other day. I got very mad. I can't believe you would say that. Sorry, I like Jesus. It's good for you, by the way, that I like Jesus better than I like you. Because it's the reason I like Jesus. The fact that I like Jesus better than I like everybody else has made me a better human being. Because if you'd met, if you if Jay, who who preceded Jesus, was your dad, you'd be miserable. Your life would be miserable. He was a terrible, terrible person. So Jesus has made me better but I follow him because I like him better than I like everybody else. And one of the things about him that fascinated me the most, I would say that I was a pure, when I was an atheist, I was a pure child of the culture. The culture taught it. I believed it in every way, right? How did you tell somebody you wanted that you loved them? You had sex with them. That was the sign. Why isn't that every romantic comedy, right? You have two people that have been tracking as friends for a really long time. How do we know that they're finally in love? They have sex with each other. That's that's how we get there, right? Now everything's transformed. Sex magically transformed this friendship into a love relationship. But and, and and you see it's so sex was you know how we express that sort of affection for each other, drinking, all everything, everything that I was taught I believed. And I would return hate for hate, anger for anger. Happiness for happiness. If you're happy around me, you got happiness. If you were angry, I was happy to go there too. We would be angry with each other. If you wanted to fight, we would fight. However you wanted to do it, I was a complete, I was, I, I, the world controlled me completely. And what I found fascinating about Jesus was that it didn't control him at all. The world made efforts to change him into what it wanted him to be, and he resisted it and stayed as he was through it all. He was the first I had ever read, ever seen, that I felt like I could say that about. He was who he was, no matter what was going on around him, and he stayed true to that. And that was one of the things that sparked in me this sense of, this guy's different. He's different than anybody I've ever read about or seen, because he remains himself in spite of the tremendous pressures around him to compromise or be something else. And I love that about him. And so when I say standing in front of an audience that hates you, that's angry, that's maybe saying ugly things about you, because they do, and not let it change you, not let it make you hate them back, or respond in anger, be strong, but not angry, that's deeply Christian for me. It's something that I love About Christ, and it's an opportunity that He's given me, that God has given me to reflect the change that He's worked in my life. The old Jay would get as ugly as you wanted to get. I was raised in a family of fighters, man. The people in my household, it was whatever I have to say to break you, I will say. That's the world that I grew up in. It's funny, I was talking, a couple, it's interesting that I've met a couple other people in apologetics that come from a very similar background, and we were, were, when people ask, why does it not bother you when people say ugly things to you? Like, man, that's just like Thanksgiving, right? I mean, that's just like going home. (laughs) That's just like Christmas day. Just people saying horrible, awful things to you. I grew up in that world. I'm fine with that, right? And if it didn't bother me as much when my dad said it to me, how much is it gonna be bothering me when some stranger says it to me? I learned to live with it from the people that I love the most. So, and my family, by the way, is not that way anymore, just to be clear. But it was the world that we grew up in. It was a different world at that time. And so standing in front of that audience and being, and, 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 what happens after the, when you, when you talk to people who agree with you, it's a different conversation when it's over. They have different questions. And one of the questions I get more than anything is what is the best argument that the other side has to offer? That, I hear that all the time. Everybody wants to know what is the best argument that the other side has to offer. What, is there anything that's difficult for you? And I always tell them First of all, let's be clear. If there was anything that I felt like was really that hard, I probably would not be as passionately pro-life as I am. I mean, it's the fact that I've heard all of their arguments and still remain unfazed that I remain the 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 advocate for the pro-life position that I am. Right? It would be odd for me to be conflicted on this issue and yet do the things that I do for a living. I obviously believe. That the best arguments demonstrate the humanity of the unborn. So when we ask what are the and, and another thing I would like to to say before I get into what I think the best argument of the other side is, is that you have to respect whatever argument they give you. And that sounds crazy because some of the arguments are just, I mean, trash. They're, they're terrible. <laughs> they, they make no sense at all. But here's the thing: I'm not trying to win arguments. I'm trying to win people. And the person who's standing in front of me who believes that the pro-choice position makes sense may offer me an argument that I think is just terrible, but I'm not going to get them to let go of that argument by being a jerk and telling them how terrible that argument is. And so I have to do my best to help walk them through it as best you can. I've mentioned many times before in talks and elsewhere that when you are arguing with people that know less about the subject matter that you're talking than you do, you're not arguing, you're teaching. Right? you're you, you in a position, you argue with people who know an awful lot, who have some level of a, you know, the comparable level of information so we can hit, or knowledge base, and you can hit very difficult issues and sort them out at a very sophisticated level. If you're having a discussion with somebody who just doesn't know anything about what they're actually talking about, you're teaching. And that should help to keep you from getting upset. Because as I teach somebody, I very rarely am angry at students that I teach. When I'm, when I coach lacrosse, I'm actually loud. I'm passionate coach, but I don't hate the people that I'm coaching. As a matter of fact, I try to encourage them. I tell them when the first day that I coach a lacrosse team, when a new team shows up and I get a lot of people who have never played before, I always encourage them. If you want to get better at lacrosse, this is the worst you will ever be today. I'm not expecting you to be good today. This is the beginning. It's all going to be awful today, but we're going to get better. If you work, if you're willing to work and that's, So when I'm talking to somebody who doesn't fully understand issues and they clearly are saying ridiculous things, I try to be patient and kind with them because I'm teaching them through this moment. I'm walking them through it because I want them to get better at thinking because I want them to live a life more in accordance with the truth and all that's good and the human flourishing that we exist to pursue. And so when I talk, about the best arguments from the other side. I always try to start by telling people every argument that they offer is the, is one of the reasons they are struggling with it. So I have to respect everything they give me as much as possible in order to help them sort through it. Uh, we can get to a place where we have to cut the dialogue off if they're just too disrespectful, but, but the best argument I think is the bodily autonomy argument. And here's why, uh, I brought a whiteboard with me uh, just cause I like whiteboards. So we'll see if it works out, but um, post-production people are going to add stuff in anyway, so w- maybe we'll have to do that if this just looks stupid, right? So three in, in general, if we start off the, the reasoning through this saying the question is, is the unborn one of us? Scott Klusendorf, Greg Kokel have talked about it for years. What is the unborn? They say that's the central question. I say is the unborn one of us? It's the same question. Are they one of us? If, if you and I agree that it's objectively wrong to kill each other, then we agree that we are the kind of thing that we ought not to kill. So then the question is, is the unborn one of us? As near as I can tell, there's three categories of answers that you can get from that in in the broadest sense of the term. One would be, yes. The unborn is one of us, so we got yes. I don't know if that's showing up at all, yes. So if we have yes, then the next thing is, so, dot, 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 yes, so, Abortion ought to be restricted. The unborn is one of us. Yes, it is. So abortion ought to be restricted. The next answer would be no. So dot, dot, is the unborn one of us? No. So abortion should be ubiquitous. It's no different than a tooth extraction. There's no moral component to it whatsoever. Just go get it as much as you need. It's just removal of valueless tissue. Is it one of us? Yes. So protect them. Is it one of us? No. Get all the abortions that you want. The third category answer is what I want to talk about today. It is, yes, the unborn is one of us, but, and that, in a nutshell, woo, is where we get to bodily autonomy arguments. Yes, no, yes, but, is a bodily autonomy argument. It acknowledges the humanity of the unborn. so. Why it's tough is because the other two are intuitively obvious. That's one of the reasons why it's tough. Are they one of us? Yes, they are. So we have to protect them. Are they one of us? No. So have all the abortions you want. Are they one of us? Yes, but abortion still ought to be allowed. Now, there's two reasons, and we're going to get into these deeper on later episodes. So in this one, we're just going to cover it in a shorter, broader term. But there's two kinds of discussion of bodily autonomy. One of them is the moral argument. Uh, we've offered that by Judas Jarvis Thompson in a defense of abortion published 1971. She is a philosopher from MIT and Judas Jarvis Thompson argues the a moral ca- case that the abortion in abortion, the unborn can be fully human. And yet abortion is still a morally acceptable choice for the woman seeking an abortion. So, why I say it's a moral case is because she makes the case that even though we accept the humanity of the unborn, you don't accept the imposition that the unborn puts on the woman biologically and impacting her life choices without giving her the freedom to detach herself from it. And she does what's called the the violinist argument, where you hear a lot about where they say, imagine that you wake up and you're in the hospital. And sewn to your side is a strange man that you've never met before. And the doctors come in and they say, hey, you're awake. So here's what happened. They say, this man, sewn up to you, is a world-famous violinist. He is dying of a rare kidney condition. The Society of Music Lovers in this area searched the blood donor bank and found you as a match in the area for him. They kidnapped you, put you to sleep, they sewed him up, and now your kidneys are working in cooperation with each other. They said, I'm so sorry this has happened to you. It's not fair. You did nothing to invite this into your life, but I can't detach you from the violinist because if I detach you from him, he will die. So Judas Jarvis Thompson argues, okay, we have different categories of how we understand our moral obligations to others. One of those would be, that we have just basic moral duties and obligations to each other. And then we have these super these, these big things, these things we're willing to do for other people. They're sacrificial by their very nature. So what she says is I may be, and she calls her argument. We call it the violinist argument. She calls it the good Samaritan argument. She said, I may be the good Samaritan and allow the violinist to stay hooked up to me. I may do this great thing and, and fulfill this duty that doesn't exist because I am taking on myself this great sacrificial act, but I am not required to do so morally. I am not morally required to allow this guy to stay. It would be great if I did. I would be a hero if I did. But allowing him to stay hooked up to me, if I, if I let him come unhooked from me and he dies, that's a perfectly acceptable view as well because it's not my duty or responsibility to allow him to use my organs. I have no moral right, moral responsibility or duty to now allow another human being to use my organs to stay alive. So she says, would it be cool? Would it be awesome? Would it be great? Yes. Am I morally obligated to do it? No. And then she says, if you accept this, that you have no moral duty or responsibility to allow the violinist to stay hooked up to you, Then in the same way, you do not have moral duties or responsibilities or obligations to the unborn, and no woman does, to allow them to use her organs to continue to live. She would be awesome, doing a great kindness, sacrificial. She would be heroic in allowing that to continue to happen if she wanted to. But it's not a moral obligation or duty. No one has a right, a moral right, to make use of her organs and to make use of her body against her will. Now, it's an argument by analogy. Very briefly, we'll go over this for a second. I want to get on to the other. Uh, all arguments by analogy are perfectly acceptable. They're judged based on whether the moral parallels hold. Because we go for this, this is in the same way, right? In the same way. So is this the same? Is the violinist sewed up to you, the same as a woman pregnant with her offspring, her, her, her growing child inside of her? Are these the same thing? I think you can see, and I, play, I do this a lot with audiences, where I'll say, let's, let's see what you think. Open it up in certain forms, smaller forms, you have the opportunity to let people wrestle with things on their own. Is it the same? And are there differences? I mean, of course there are differences. Uh, and their are differences, are the differences morally relevant? That's the, that becomes the question, right? For example, the stranger showed up to me. Would it be different if it wasn't a stranger showed up to me? Or if it was my son, Peyton, or my daughter, Nika? And they're like, hey, Jay, you can unhook if you want, but it will kill them. And I said, I have no moral duty or responsibility to let them continue to live off of my organs. I set them loose. It's not my fault that they're sick and let them die. Would that be the same moral calculation? Would you understand it differently? Do I have different moral duties and responsibilities to my, my offspring than I have to other people? Does Payton get more from me than other people do naturally? The law seems to agree that he does, that I have moral duties and responsibilities to him that other people don't One of my weirdly, like, I got caught in every once in a while, you get you go down one of those the rabbit holes online, like in reels or TikToks or whatever. And there's a guy who tackles deadbeat dads that I mean, he's huge. He's a giant guy. He wears football pads and he, he tracks down deadbeat dads and tackles them. And it just spears. I'm like Bill Goldberg spears them. It is brutal. And then he just walks off. That's all he does. He finds deadbeat dad, tackles him and he walks off and, and, Literally, God help me. I love it. There was something about the idea of him finding men who have failed in their responsibility and duty to their children and just laying them out and just walking off. Man. But I'm watching this and I said to my wife, This is, this is assault. I mean, it's, it's, it's he is hitting them. It is so brutal. It is so hard. He just tackles. I just don't understand how anybody can tackle that hard within the three or four steps that he often takes. But he just spears them and lays them out, and he says, you've been served. And he gets up and walks off, and he has the friend that's taping him that's always yelling at him, take care of your kids as they're walking off. And I look at my wife, it's like, this is assault. How is he getting away with this? And my wife points out what is obvious, but wasn't obvious to me when I was watching it. Who are they going to tell? They are hiding from their responsibility, they can't go to the authorities. If they're deadbeat dads, that means they had a they had a legal responsibility to take care of their kids and they're not doing it. And so they have no one they can go and tell. This guy's tackling us. There is no ally. There's no one on their side. There's no one that's gonna take. He he has found just like the perfect victim for what he's doing. <laughs> People who have put themselves in position by denying the duties and responsibilities they have to their own kids. And the only reason that I like it, and this guy has tons of views and people watch him, and 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 the only reason he has this cheering audience is because everybody seems to acknowledge something. Those men owe a duty to their kids and they're failing to do it. And in so doing, when another man finds them and just gives them a reminder, however harsh and painful that reminder is, it's not the worst thing in the world. And it, you can take some enjoyment from realizing they may have not done what they were supposed to do, but the world noticed. And somebody brought that attention to everybody. Take care of your kids. I don't know what dreams or aspirations you have. I don't know the lifestyle that you want to lead. I don't know what else you want to do with your life. But deadbeat dads, take care of your kids. So when we say, would it be my son? Would it be different if it was Payton? I think most people would agree. If I said I'm just going to let my son die, I have no moral duty and obligation to yeah, him. That's your boy. That's your man. That's your guy, man. That's your kid, your son. How can you let him die? I don't know him, my body. I don't know him, my organs. No, no, we would morally judge that differently. Okay, here's another parallel. Let's think about. Abortion is not letting people die. Abortion is an intentionally destructive act against another life. Now, it's getting more and more, over 50% of abortions in the United States are done with the what we used to RU 486 protocol, where you take two pills, one pill that basically ends the life by cutting off its nourishment and the other pill that ejects it from the mother's body by causing contractions and getting the child out of it. That's still a chemical attack against that life or surgical abortion you're scraping the body out in pieces and cutting it out apologize if that's brutal but that's what's happening or in the old days and they would do saline abortions or the places where they still do if other parts of the world where they basically just inject fluid into the amniotic sac to make it inhospitable for life these are attacks this is not letting a child die this is an attack against the the body of your offspring before they're born however nascent that life is however early in its development it is it's an attack on it so would we evaluate it differently if i said i have no obligation to do to this violinist and then i cut them up with a machete or if i made them take poison so that they would die because they couldn't take in any more nourishment or any another other any ways we perform abortion yes i think we evaluate that differently we say that's not the same it's not the same as moving because what's killing the Violinist, if I unhook from him, what is he dying of? He's dying of a pathological condition that he brought this relationship. He was sick before he knew me, and now he's hooked up to me, and I'm allowing him to die for whenever that is. But if I intentionally kill him to get myself out of this, that's a different act altogether. They're no longer dying of an illness that they had prior to meeting me. I'm killing them. And that's a different calculation altogether. We could do this, by the way, and I've done this in front of audiences for about an hour just find everything possible that we could think about what is supposed to be parallel between these two and recognize they're not the same. Even if I accept the idea that I have no moral duty to that violinist, that doesn't translate into that. The mother has no moral duty or responsibility to withhold a lethal action against her child before it's born. So the moral case I think fails. And, and Francis Beckwith has written about this in defending life. Christopher Kayser has written about this extensively. Uh, in his book, uh, you know, uh, The Ethics of Abortion, uh, I've mentioned before that Kate Griesley, a pro-choice scholar and legal scholar, has written about it in her book, Arguments About Abortion. All three of those people, I think, do fantastic work in dismantling at a very sophisticated level the power, the moral power of this argument. So I said there's two, though. There's the moral argument, Judith Jarvis Thomson brought, and then uh, David Boonin in his book, uh, I believe it's called Beyond Row. It's a little book that you can get. Uh, it's a great book, powerful book. You learn a lot when you read people who disagree with you. He puts forth what he talks about as like more of a legal bodily autonomy argument. He said, and the, remember the power of this is when going back to my little, my, my, my lovely little board here, right? Yes. The unborn are human. So we should protect them. The power of this is that it, it bypasses this altogether. And by the way, all arguments I've noticed when people who disagree with me eventually end up here when I convince them that the unborn are human and that the answer to the question is yes, not no, they don't drop no, so, and move to yes, so. They usually drop no, so, and move to yes, but. So we're going to be having a bodily autonomy argument eventually anyway. And so when we get here to yes, but, he says, yes, it's human. And, well, he doesn't believe that. But he said, let's grant for the sake of this argument. Yes, it's human. And I'm even going to grant further, yes, it's immoral. But it should still be legal. So he says, the morale, let's set the morality of it aside it could still be wrong and still should be legal. And he, he calls on a case from uh July of 1978 in Allegheny, Pennsylvania called mcfall v. Shimp. Uh, uh where a gentleman gets aplastic anemia, he gets his cousin, I believe, uh to agree to get his bone marrow tested to see if he can help him. His cousin knowing this is a painful procedure backs out and he sues him saying, "You said you would do this." And I'm going to die if you don't do this. And McFaul v. Shemp is a very short judicial decision. I think it's like a, I think it's a page and a half or it's very short. And, but why it's relevant and it's, you know, it's, this is not a Supreme court case. This is from a, it's a very local case, but why it becomes relevant for so many arguments when we get into this is that the judge makes this distinction. Do I think that he is despicable for not going through with it? Yes but the law cannot compel us as a a community to reach into his body and claim what is his for others. We're not allowed to steal his material for others, for the health of others, even if I recognize that he's a despicable human being for not doing it. Moral condemnation, but we cannot require other people under force to give of what they have there. And this is where I think you get into the toughest form of the argument. And I did actually, I wrote a, an article for this for Christian research journal that I will, will provide links for uh, on the YouTube video for this. But in short, the response then comes from Kate Greasley, who I lean on a lot for this one. And I've talked about it before. She says, look, when we're talking about a legal case, there's only so many different ways you can die. You can die of suicide. You can die a natural death. You can die by accident and you can die by homicide. I mean, when you show up to a scene and you find somebody dead, the question is, how did they die? Did they kill themselves? Did they die of natural causes? Did they have an accident? Or did somebody kill them? It's one of those suicide, natural death, uh, accident or homicide. So she said, if, if we're going that way that we're going with, that he, they want to go with that then we have to look at this as a case of justifiable homicide cuz that's the case you're making now that we acknowledge that it's a valuable human being and they have justified reasons to commit homicide to be the cause of death cuz that's what we're embracing one human being has the right to kill Another human being, both of them fully valuable human beings. So what is that justification? And she says that bar is high. She said it's high for a reason. We want the justifiable homicide bar set very, very high. We want the standard difficult to reach because that protects all of us. You don't want people to have trivial reasons to be allowed to destroy you. I don't want it. You don't want it. None of us want it. So she says the two standards are necessity and proportionality. Is it necessary that you die to resolve this conflict? And is the action against you proportional to the harms that you're causing another? And she argues that in this case, neither one of those standards are met. Said it simply isn't necessary. And she says, I recognize the incredible demands that pregnancy puts on a woman. I recognize those. And I'm not making them trivial. I'm just saying that compared to being destroyed, they don't measure up. And if the question is, how do we resolve this? And if we acknowledge the fully, which she doesn't, she doesn't think they're valuable human beings. She said, but if you do, if you take that step, which all bodily autonomy arguments do, If you want to go into that field and acknowledge the full value of that human life, then you have to recognize that the resolution of this would be to allow it to mature longer and then separate the two as soon as was possible and as soon as it's safe for both of them through some means or another. Allow them to mature to the place where they have the right to exist outside of that relationship, even though it's an imposition. She says it's a tremendous imposition. It's a huge imposition. But the imposition that the woman faces is not proportional to destroying them. And it's not necessary for them to die to reach a resolution of this. Even though it's making demands on one human being over another, when we're balancing out the value of life under the standards of justifiable homicide, you just aren't going to reach it. So she says that's it. That's why she says that's a loser argument. Get off of bodily autonomy and get back to the idea of no. So that we have compelling reasons to believe that it's not one of us and that we're allowed to do whatever we want to it at that point. And that's the justification of it. Cause she said this is difficult. This is the reason that I feel like this is more difficult or why it's the best the other side has to offer is because it requires a level of philosophical sophistication and research that most people just don't have the time to do in order to counter it. And another thing about it is I think that there, for some people, not for me, let's go back to the violinist argument. It's interesting to see how some people respond to that argument. Some people hear it and they immediately say, wow, I feel really challenged in my pro-life position. I've seen people who struggle with it. I've seen people who had a response that said, I don't think that that holds up for anything other than rape. I think it might be interesting to discuss its value in rape cases women who were children who were conceived in rape because in every other case, a parallel that fails is that the woman made a free choice to engage in an act that had the potential to bring forth that life. And she knew that before she did it. And so did the man that was involved in it. They both knew before they did it, that this was a procreative act by nature. It had the chance of producing life. And so there's some responsibility for the consequences of what actions that they chose. So this person says the bodily of autonomy argument doesn't make sense to me in the, in the violinist formulation, except in cases of rape, because it's the only place where the woman and the man, whoever was involved in this didn't make free decisions to get involved in something that produces life. And then there's people like me, when I heard it, I just thought that just, that sounds crazy. I don't, I don't see any clear connection between that and pregnancy. And and I've always struggled to see the power of it personally, but I've seen the power of it on other people, and so I respect it as an argument. I think that the legal case of McFaul v. Shimp makes it even muddies the water even more. So if this is already bothering you, it makes things more difficult. That's why it's so helpful to have somebody, uh, people who are able to look at this who understand both law, like Francis Beckwith, who understands both the law and morality, and like Kate Griasley from the other side, who understands both the law and morality, but the philosophical and legal arguments and help us see thing, this thing clear. But, but the, that's the power of this argument. Unlike just isn't one of us, which can be an easier thing to sort through. I can teach you to sort through that in probably like five or 10 minutes on a basic level. This is a little bit more difficult. It requires a little bit more reflection. And we're gonna look at elements of those arguments more in depth later. And on a future episode two, we're going to spend time looking at what I just said a second ago, the question of rape, uh, the, the for those who hear that and say, not a great argument, except maybe in the case of rape, how do we handle bodily autonomy when it comes to rape? But today I just wanted to introduce that because that, when someone says, what's the best that the other side has to offer to me, that's the best that the other side has to offer it's the most difficult to deal with. It requires the most thought to get through. It does require you to spend time. I, and I don't think this is a bad idea, by the way. I like things that spend time, that you have to spend time digesting. That I, I mentioned in front of audiences, the person that did the most to convince me that Christianity wasn't ridiculous when I was an atheist I didn't talk to that person for over a year between the last conversation I had with them and the moment that I accepted that Christianity was the truth. They were the best arguer I ever met. And as far as they knew, the last conversation they ever had with me was a colossal failure. They did nothing to convince me of the truth of Christianity. And yet, over time, wrestling with these issues, I was able to, as I said, get through a lot of things and come to see and be willing even just to look at who the person of Jesus Christ was. And then that ultimately is what won me over. So I'm not opposed to the idea that some conversations don't end cleanly. So we need to prepare ourselves to have conversations. And when we meet tough things, things that require us to think more deeply, that shouldn't bother us. Because every single view that you have of human beings, no matter what your ethical view that you bring to the table is, whether you think we have no value at all, whether you think we have value by virtue of being persons, which we'll talk about later and not by virtue of merely being human, or whether you think that we are intrinsically valuable by virtue of our humanity. And that is the best grounding of equal dignity that we see the the intuition of equal dignity that we see commonly shared oftentimes around the world, no matter which one of those views you hold to, there's going to be tough cases. There's always going to be places that we have to look and say, things are getting weird here. And abortion is one of those places. It's just a difficult thing. It's not cut and dried as people might want to make you believe because it gets into questions that are asking fundamental questions about what it means to be a human being. Am I valuable? Do I matter? Do things like objective moral values and duties exist? Do I owe something to my fellow man? All of these are tied up into this question. And what are my duties and responsibilities to my children? And and it comes together at this point where, and and it's one of the things I really appreciate about not just Kate Greasley but other authors who are willing to look at pregnancy and say, as much as we're trying to find something analogous to pregnancy, sooner or later, we just have to admit that pregnancy is just weird. It is both the strangest relationship you will ever be in in your life And it is the means by which every human being who has ever existed came to exist. Right? So in in the one case, it's ubiquitous because every one of us that's alive has been born. But in the other case, it's a unique relationship that cannot be understood through analogy with almost any other relationship that we can think of. Because at the one, at that very short window of, of time, the mom, in her offspring, her child, her fetus, all of that—they are tied together in the strangest, weirdest way. And the biology of it is fascinating, and the the philosophy and ethics of it get even more interesting. And so, to think about this and say, "Well, there, if, if there's not an easy answer, then that's troubling." That's the wrong way to look at it. Is to recognize that in every human relationship, there there exists the possibility of a tremendously difficult choice that will have to be made that will balance the rights of one human being against the rights of another, the freedom of one human being against the freedom of another, the life of one human being against the freedom to move without hindrance of another, that these things just happen in human relationships. And the closer we get to very tough cases like physician-assisted suicide and abortion, and uh, we talked about embryonic stem cell research many years ago, which is not as big a deal as it was, although it's still worth talking about, but it's just not in the public light the way it used to be uh, when you're talking about human-animal chimera research. Any of these things where we're talking about very tough questions that have to be asked, every single evaluation of them is going to be tough. It's not easy for anybody and any, any worldview that steps in and says, I have an easy answer to that question. It may look like they have an easy answer to that question, but even if it does feel easy on that one, we'll find something that their worldview has got to deal with. That is horrifying for them to have to deal with as well and bring that up to light and say, okay, sure. If I grant you that, how do you deal with these things over here? Because it can get ugly all over the place. I think Leon Cass was the first guy I ever read that uh, where he said, every ethical framework has got its tough cases that shouldn't discourage us from thinking deeply about them. It just has to be a recognition that some issues are just tough to sort through. And this particular issue, I think is the best that the other side has to offer. I've looked at it as best I can from as many different writers as I can, who both support it and fight against it. And at the end of the day, I think bodily autonomy arguments just cannot hold up to the high level the high standard that's necessary to be able to justify destroying another human life once we grant their full humanity. Now they may back off of that, but once you, if you're winning the yes but argument, like I told, you, they're not more likely than not going to move to yes so for you. They're going to move back to no so, and they're going to move back. And that happened to me at University of North Carolina. I remember making this guy came to me with Bali autonomy arguments, and I made a, what I thought was a fairly, fairly compelling case that his arguments weren't holding, uh, carrying the weight that he thought they were. And he responded, At the end of the day, I just don't think they're human. It's like, well, then why do we spend the last 30 minutes doing bodily autonomy arguments? <laughs> At the end of the day, you just don't think they're one of us. But now we got to go back and answer, Why do you think they're not one of us? And I'll tell you why I think they are. Um, hey, if you enjoy this content, as always, please go to merelyhumanministries.org and uh, you can contribute to our effort there. Uh, we thank you so much for the audience that we're gaining. Little by little, I am hearing from people. If you ever have questions, please feel free to go to our website, merelyhumanministries.org and find the way to there's a way to ask me questions at the website, or you're free to email me at jwatts at merelyhumanministries.org, Just the letter J W A T T S at merely and submit questions there. We will have a guest on the next show. And we are also working to get young people to come and join us so that they can share their experiences, both pro-life and how they're interacting with people on their campus who disagree with them. Thank you so much for your time. This has been Human Things. Have a great day.